Let us pray. God, we ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our ears, that we might hear you in these words of scripture, that we might hear your words for our lives, that you might show us where it is that you would have us travel next in our journey. We lift up these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is one of my favorites. It's from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments by which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As we continue on this week in our series through Acts, I want to give just a little bit of a refresher uh, previously on the Acts of the Apostles before we jump into Acts 5. Several weeks ago on Ascension, in Acts 1, we saw Jesus promise the Holy Spirit to the disciples before ascending into heaven to reign beside God the Father. Just after that, uh, Matthias is chosen to replace Judas as one of the twelve. When Judas betrays Jesus and takes his own life, the disciples are left with eleven and decide to replace him with Matthias. So there are still twelve. Then in Acts 2, we move on to Pentecost, which is when the promised Holy Spirit descends on the twelve disciples who start preaching in all different languages to the people who have gathered in Jerusalem from all different parts of the world. And Peter gives the first of many long sermons in Acts. Much of Acts at the beginning is Peter preaching. And after this, the community begins to form. They begin to meet and worship together. We see Peter and John go to pray at the temple, and while on their way, they come across a lame man who's begging for alms, but instead of giving him money, they heal him miraculously. And after that healing, people begin to listen to them. Um, they begin to pay attention to what's happening, and eventually that builds up to um, Peter and some others being arrested for essentially disturbing the peace. They're gathering too many crowds and causing too much commotion. But they're only held overnight before Peter preaches again and they are released. The believers begin to pray for boldness 
They begin to share everything in common. And it is at that point that we jump in today in Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. There's so much good stuff to choose from in the beginning of Acts that it was hard to narrow down a passage for this week. But I've always been sort of fascinated by this story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's a weird story. It feels like the sort of thing that would happen in the Old Testament, but not now in the New Testament after Jesus' resurrection. And in fact, there are several similar things that happen in the Old Testament. But here we have one right in the middle of all of the amazing things happening at the beginning of the Christian church. Now, immediately before this weird story of sudden deaths in chapter 4, verse 32 and following, a man named Barnabas is so moved by the generosity of the community that he sells his field and gives all of the proceeds to the church community. Now, it's generally believed that Luke, the author of Acts, put that there in the narrative right before what I just read to clue us in to what Ananias and Sapphira's motivation for lying might have been. Peter says that it wasn't a requirement for them to give everything they had. It's just that the people around them were doing it, and they wanted to look just as good as Barnabas did. The other Christians have been making huge personal sacrifices. They're selling their possessions to help the poor. They're putting their own social status at risk. 
They are really a living, breathing picture of loving God with all of their heart and soul and mind without worrying about the cost. And so Ananias, probably worried about making sure he kept aside enough money to take care of his own family in the future, rather than relying on the community to care for them if something terrible should happen, he wants to make a public offering like the other Christians did. And he wants to make a sacrificial one like the other Christians did. And so he does, or at least he appears to. And up to the point of his lie about how much of the proceeds they gave, aside from maybe not trusting God and his fellow churchgoers to take care of him or to help him through whatever he was struggling with, Ananias isn't really that bad of a guy. It's just how he presents the situation to his community and to God that is the problem. Instead of saying, I sold my property and here is half or three quarters or one third or whatever the proportion was of the proceeds, he says, I sold my property and I'm giving the church everything. He's not honest with God or with his community about his struggle to trust or his struggle to give. He's not honest about how much he's actually giving. He wants all of the pious glory without all of the actual sacrifice. And his wife, Sapphira, is complicit in this flagrant sin. She knows about it. They've talked about it. They've discussed it. And yet, she says nothing. She goes right along with it. So loathsome is this sin of faking it in God's eyes, that Ananias dies on the spot when he's confronted with it. And a few hours later, when his wife shows up and plays dumb, she dies on the spot too. They were so determined to look righteous that their pride literally killed them. And this is the most severe punishment we see in the life of the early church. We see severe punishments carried out by the rulers of the nation against the Christians, but within the church, as a result of sin, this is the most terrible punishment we see. Ananias and Sapphira weren't murderers. They didn't steal from anyone. The sort of lie they told wouldn't even rank as a misdemeanor in our current culture. It might, at worst, get them a tax penalty if they claimed it all as a deduction. They might have gotten audited. And yet, this sin earns them sudden death. Let that sink in a moment, because I know I had to sit with it for a while myself to really start to process the implications of that. The biggest, baddest punishment that God doles out in the early church is not against someone who was scary or dangerous. It was not against a heretic or a heathen. The punishment was carried out against an upstanding couple who were, as far as we can tell from the narrative, well-respected in their church community. The harshest punishment in this early church is exacted upon the apathetic, the lukewarm, the ones who tried to do the least amount possible and still be counted among the most faithful, the ones who said that's good enough and expected to be as well thought of as those giving everything. They wanted to look like they trusted God fully when they really only partly trusted God. 
They wanted to look like they were pouring everything into worshiping God, when really they didn't understand the point of worshiping through giving. They wanted to seem as generous as everyone else, when really they were struggling with generosity. They were going to church without really going to church. This is a difficult story. In fact, as far as I can tell, it doesn't actually show up in the Sunday lectionary. It's a hard one to read. It's a hard one to preach about. It's hard to live with. But we cannot ignore it. It's one of those pieces of scripture that falls into the category of we will never grow without dealing with this. For churches that want to figure out how to channel the power and the growth and the impact of the early church in Acts, this passage must be dealt with. Because we can't have the miracles and the conversions and the revival without asking God to take us seriously. And if we want God to take us seriously, we have to take God seriously and remember what is demanded of us. If we truly want this place to be holy ground, if we want this building to shake with the power of God, we must not take for granted the commitment that that requires. One of the commentaries that I am recommending for those who are following along the Bible study in Acts this summer is called Acts for Everyone. It's by N.T. Wright. And he says this about this passage. We can't have it both ways. If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to bullying authorities, makes converts to right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. Those who claim to take God seriously should not be surprised when God takes them seriously. It's a lesson that the modern American church is learning the hard way these days. I am very grateful that we don't have people dropping dead in the aisles of this church as a punishment for lies, but make no mistake that the road to growth and renewal runs straight through the need to give our all and to be honest with ourselves and with God and with others about what we are struggling to give up. Some, like Ananias and Sapphira, struggle to give money or physical things, and yet we are called to do so and to do so cheerfully and generously so that the church can afford to keep moving on. Some struggle to give up time and energy for things like fellowship and study and mission. And yet without fellowship and study and mission, the church is just a mildly Jesus-flavored club. Some struggle to let go of inhibitions and worship deeply in church. And yet without fully participatory and dynamic worship, the church is robbed of opportunities to worship with the saints of all the ages. Ananias and Sapphira died for failing to take God seriously. They were just checking the Christian box on the census without really getting it. They wanted to look Christian without all the hassle of actually acting like one. But 
Those who acted generously and with devotion, who gave all that they possibly could to the church, those who took care of everyone and who worshipped and prayed together constantly, they became a huge, growing, dynamic community that spread all over the earth when they lived into God's grace rather than against it. Amazing things happened. When we move forward to the very following passage, Acts 5:12 and following, we read this. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Even those who weren't a part of the community directly looked at it and knew that there was something special about it. They wanted to be so close to it that even Peter's shadow falling on them was good enough. God's power does not go unnoticed. There is no expiration date on the work of the Holy Spirit. God has not stopped working, and we have the opportunity to live in to the work that God is doing in this world. Now, when we sing the final hymn this morning, which I realize is ironically titled, Take My Life, I encourage you to think carefully about the words you're singing and about how much you really mean them. Because it's a beautiful hymn that sometimes we take for granted because we might know it pretty well. But it should be a very hard one to sing through. In light of today's scripture, it might make you want to feel like you need to duck. If you're not terrified by the implications of telling God, take my life and let it be holy for you, then you might want to reread this portion of Acts. But before we move on to that, I want to share a favorite song with you. And I want you to spend this time listening and reflecting on what it is that you still need to turn over to God. Make it a time of prayer and reflection before we sing our next hymn. And think about what mountains are in the way of your deepening spiritual life. What are you holding on to that God desires for you to let go of? Where aren't you being honest about how much you are really offering time or money or trust Because when we lie to God and when we lie to others about how much we are contributing to our community, we hurt ourselves and the people around us. But when we honestly offer up to God our whole being and everything that we have, we become a dynamic and thriving representation of heaven right here on earth.
take me 